Hi, you are now listening to Let's Talk Trees, a podcast brought to you by C4N eCraft with me, Anggi Cahyaningtias. Today, we are going to discuss about the importance of biodiversity to our food system. Joining us from the Philippines is Anya Gassner. Anya is Senior Livelihood Specialist and the Head of Research Methods Group at the World Agroforestry or ICRAF. And we also have Amy Ikawitz, Team Leader of Sustainable Landscape and Livelihoods Program at C4, joining us from Israel. Hi, Anya and Amy. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Very well. Thanks. It's really nice to have you here. So before we go to our main discussion, Can you please tell our audience about you and what do you love most about what you do? I'll give the first hot seat to Anya. Uh, thank you, Angie. So um, I'm a trained ecologist. I've been working for 20 years in tropical countries in various rural development programs, often on the interface between agriculture and forestry. And I, I've been with World Agroforestry for the last 10 years. What I like the most about my job is working with different people across different countries. And what is very exciting from my end is that um, sustainable development is a global issue with nobody really having a solution. But if you work with governments in different tropical countries, you learn that each government, because of their historical and cultural context, has have part of the solution. So to be able to link people and to work with them It's a bit like doing a puzzle and you get closer to what the solution might be. So I find that very exciting. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Thanks, Anya. So, Amy, can you also tell us about you? Sure. Um, so I am a trained natural resource and development economist. And I worked for many years on linking poverty and the natural environment, specifically forests. And deforestation and when I came to C4 about eight years ago I started um, working on a new topic for me which was looking at the links between food security and nutrition and forests and landscapes and when I when I told my family and my friends about this new research direction for me everybody laughed because I am known to be a little bit obsessive about food. <laughs> so everybody thought this was the perfect topic for me. And so that's kind of like on the personal side, but from the research side, I think although income and poverty are, are very important, and I still think that they are, and I work a bit on them, food is an even more basic human right. So I feel like contributing to research on the interactions between food and the natural environment, particularly in low-income communities, is, is something that makes me feel like I'm working on a topic that's really vital for improving both people's lives and for the planet in my tiny, 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 tiny way. Sounds like you have a lot of fun doing your work, <laughs> yeah? I do. <laughs> okay, so let's go to our main course of the day. My first question is, um, now that we live in a strange time in this pandemic and the looming crisis, why is it timely to bring in discussion on biodiversity of food? Um, I'll go first to Anya, I guess. Thank you. Well, I've been under um, lockdown for two months in my house in Manila and had a lot of time to actually think about this. And I think, you know, the COVID-19 crisis has exposed the vulnerability of our economies to shock. And this has laid bare deep inequalities in our society 
that threaten the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. We have governments around the world that are looking for recovery options that will deliver quickly new jobs and new businesses and new income. And for me, in no other sector is ecologically sustainable green production so closely linked to job creation as in food production. The food system represents a vital economy sector, making up the largest source of employment in many countries of the global south. Our current food system, that one that we all used to, is based on maximizing productivity and efficiency by utilizing geographically production advantages and is built on economies of scale. While this has actually led to the availability of abundant affordable food, there is ample scientific evidence. We had several landmark, landmark reports last year, which all have said the same, is that our current food system is not sustainable. In many countries, it has resulted in poor nutrition, obesity, and related non-communicable diseases. And at the same time, from an economic point of view, it diminishes the opportunity for farmers in producer countries to move into higher income segments of the value chain. Not only are farmers denied prosperity, because they always sit just as producers, but it also diminishes the opportunities for these countries themselves to build strong rural economies through small, medium enterprises. Okay, so so our food system now is not sustainable, yeah, Anya. So I need to go to Amy. Um, based on your work all these years, Amy, what are the solutions offered by nature? So the world's wild and also cultivated biodiversity are super important for providing food and nutrition to people all over the world. and. I think this is something that's often um, people either are not aware of or they don't really understand the extent of it. Forests, as well as other natural landscapes, um, provide nutrient-rich foods. So like Anya was talking about the huge contribution of commercialized agriculture and how successful it's been. It has been, but it has been mostly for staple crops. So wheat, maize, rice, those are the things that often people think of when they think about food security. That's what feed. That's what fills people's bellies. But they're not very nutrient-rich. So when we talk about nutrient-rich foods, we mean more like fruits and vegetables and legumes and animal source foods. So those are the types of foods that often come um, from the natural landscape. And so we know in, in the more temperate countries and often the richer countries, people do still collect wild foods. They collect blueberries in New England and Canada. People hunt as, um, as for recreation, but also for food in, in the developed countries. But in developing countries, the harvesting of many, many species of wild fruits, vegetables, mushrooms, insects, meat, um, and even fish that is also related to natural landscapes, at least um, freshwater fish, those are incredibly important for people's diets and cultures um, in many cases. Um, so even in rich countries, actually, it's not only a luxury food for people, but especially for in indigenous communities in rich countries. Um, so overall, they're very important parts of people's diets, but we don't really have much information about their quantities. That's partly probably because that they're so uh, heterogeneous. There are so many varieties. 
and they some of them are very specific to local areas so it's difficult to collect um, at a national level and even more so on an international level so they don't really appear in in most uh, databases the most well-known databases run by the FAO so we don't really know how much of these foods are collected and consumed and because they're not easily commercializable so people can't really earn money big companies can't earn money from from quote-unquote producing them because they're given by nature and then selling them there's not enough research um, like there is in other foods that that uh, private the private sector can capitalize on so where we have this information gap and then to make it even worse even when we know the quantities of food the nutrients that they provide that requires analysis in labs to see you know how much iron how much zinc how many vitamins are in in specific foods a lot of that information is lacking for most wild foods in the world okay Anya, do you want to add to that point yeah very much so i mean amy just very nicely laid out like the diversity of like a food portfolio if you want to call it that way a nutrition portfolio that you get from nature itself in natural environments but it's not only the natural environments that offer that we have managed agricultural landscapes which have a different way of producing the food. Um, these days there are new terminologies. Uh, what's coming up very strongly is um, agricultural practices based on agroecological principles. Um, agroforestry is one of the examples where you actually combine diversity of crops and animals and trees onto the same piece of land on the same farm. And the farmer actually does this to, um, to mimic natural flows of fertilizers, nutrients, as well as water, it mimics much more the systems that Amy just ex uh, described, the, the forest systems. So the system itself has a way lower ecological footprint on the one hand. It doesn't have the same environmental impacts or costs that the conventional agriculture system has. And it offers a much wider variety of products. So in terms, we're talking about biodiversity. So these systems, not only do they offer a much wider um, food basket of different items to both the farmers that are living on the land, but could also offer it to the cities around it. And they also are, have a very high value in biodiversity. Thank you. Those are great points. Um, we know that nature provides many high nutrient foods, mm -hmm. but between that and the pressure to provide food for billions of people around the world, um, what are the challenges that we're facing? Maybe I'll go first to Amy. Thanks a lot, Angie, for, for your question, because I think it's a very important question that often comes up in the popular press. And even um, when you hear speeches uh, from policymakers, particularly in developing countries, but also in some developed countries, that it, the perspective is often that we see the requirement of feeding billions of people on the planet as something that competes with the conservation of biodiversity in forests. And what our work and um, ICREF's work as well um, try to bring out is that those, those two objectives should not be seen as competing, but that they're actually complementary. This is particularly the case when we think of food security as not just the main staple crops that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, so if you're not just talking about fields of one 
of one crop of wheat or maize that requires large land areas and that when they're produced in a commercialized way, often vast tracts of land with lots of um, agrochemicals. But when you think about the whole a whole healthy diet of diverse foods, including fruits and vegetables and animal foods and legumes, in addition to staple crops. Then this tension between forests and food security, I think, and I think disappears um, because forests are actually key in providing food security. And that's what we're trying to show. So we have this project um, now that we're, um, it's just coming to an end. We're still analyzing the data. But the C4 and the FAO collaborated on a project on trying to quantify wild food consumption in Zambia. We're trying to fill that gap that I mentioned that there isn't that much known about quantities except from very small areas. So what we decided to do was to look across Zambia. We looked at e we had we picked sites in all the different agroecological zones in Zambia. And we surveyed households about their wild food collection and consumption. And we found even surprising to us, actually, was that over 90% of households that we surveyed collected and consumed wild fruits in the year before. Now, wild fruit, um, fruits in general are under-consumed in the world and especially under-consumed in sub-Saharan Africa. So this is very important because they're very, they're very, very nutrient-rich. And so we also, we asked the, the female head of the household also how, how many times they had consumed fruit in the week before the survey. And we found that they reported consuming wild fruits more than twice as frequently as domestic fruits. So this is not just a small supplementation of diet. This is an actual key part of people's diets. So when you ask, well, um, and, and it's not exactly what you said, Angie, I don't want to say that this is exactly what you said, but this is often what you hear. Well, forests are great and we need to conserve them, but it's more important to feed people. What this is showing is that forests are feeding people. And if we think that we have to sacrifice, for example, in Zambia, forests to grow more maize, and we cut the forest to grow, to grow maize, where are people's fruit consumption going to come from? Mm -hmm. if, you think about it in, if you think about it in that way, then you can see that deforestation, that's going to risk not only biodiversity, but it's also going to put at risk the diversity of people's diets. And then mm -hmm. one last point that I just wanted to add, which Anya actually also um, said very, very clearly, especially about agroecological systems, about their ecosystem services, forests um, are perhaps the biggest ecosystem service provider for agriculture. So again, it's not that they're, it's competing with agriculture. Forests actually help agriculture by providing homes for bees, for pollination services, for providing nutrients to soils and for helping with the retain water for the hydrological cycle. So there are many ways that if, that if we think about forests as being antithetical to agriculture, if we were to decide to clear forests in order to grow more food, we would probably be making both people's diets from the forest worse, but even people's diets from agriculture worse. So forest is like a free supermarket, yeah? So we don't cut them down and replace it with a store that just provides like rice or maize. That <laughs> was very it's, well it's said. Important. I actually want to quote you on that. I like that. I really like that sentence. <laughs> I actually get it from one of your video, actually, Amy. Okay, so Anya, do you want to add to that point? Now, I would like to actually add to that. I just would like to stress 
one of the problems that we have when people actually say, okay, so guys, this is all very nice. You want to be more biodiversity friendly and there are options like you can keep nature and you have more agroecological ways of producing food. The common um, knowledge or the argument is that, it's that, well, the conventional food system is actually very profitable. It has a very high productivity and it actually results in very affordable food. But to say that because they are more productive and that results in more affordable food is a flawed argument. And I would like to actually bring back the reports that I mentioned earlier, the Lancet Commission report on food in the Anthropocene, as well as the IPBES report on the global assessment of biodiversity. They're pointing out very clearly that the environmental and health costs of that one hectare of intensified maize is very high. It just is not calculated. Our current food system is working on, a, on an economic model that's taking natural inputs like water, soil, clean air as free. So they do not calculate that. If we would actually calculate through a proper accounting system that input and put a cost to that, one would very quickly actually realize that affordable food through highly intensified system is a myth. And I just would really like to actually stress that, that fact. And why is actually the second part about the productivity is how come, as Amy was saying that earlier, you have the Green Revolution, a fantastic intervention, a fantastic donor-driven intervention that was tackling the food shortage after the Second World War, being majorly successful. They tackled three to four major cereals. And we had a massive research, financing, uh, policy support system into these systems. And what have we learned from that? We have learned from that that you can triple and four times the yield of these crops. It's fantastic if research works together with farmers and polit politicians. So can we use exactly the same support for the more diverse system? Can we use the same support for those unknown crops and unknown food items that also Amy said? because then we can close the productivity gap. And I think that is what we really need to do. And that is where the comparison right now between conventional farming and the more agroecological approaches is not a right comparison. One had 50 years of investment and the other one had pretty much zero. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Anya. I hope we can get uh, the answer to those questions quickly, yeah? Yes, okay. I mean, uh, we don't have a lot of time. I mean, if you if you if you read the IPBES report, um, it has to happen yesterday. OK, so while we're at it, um, my last question to wrap up. Do you have any proposed solutions to this um, problem? Starting from you, Anya. Yes, thank you, Amy. So as we discussed um, earlier, we start the conversation off with that we find ourselves in a COVID-19 crisis, which is an external shock for everybody. So while global value chains and commercial agriculture are very important, not only for the global food systems, but also for local rural economies, because they provide producers to access to international markets, the COVID-19 crisis has demonstrated how susceptible these are to economic shocks. 
So while a lot of governments are looking into investments right now, we're going to spend trillions of money to recover from COVID-19, we have a wonderful opportunity to actually invest in shorter local supply chains. What that means is we would have pharma cooperatives that are producing a wide variety of food and beverages, different products that actually cater for the needs of consumers in the cities nearby. That is not only generating green jobs locally, but it also will make local producers and consumer less vulnerable to external shocks, which are interrupting, as we have just seen, global supply chains. We just talked about the differences between agroecological methods and those mixed farming and the conventional agriculture. To make those systems really actually productive as well as profitable for these farmers, I just spoke earlier about what we need is like a green revolution for mixed farming. What we need is investments into capital enhancement of these producers. People need to actually learn more skills and actually need extension services. We need functional market and financial institution networks that link those farmers to um, money as well as to the consumers. And um, yeah, so that I think would be, that to me is the most um, effective measure, direct measure for a COVID-19 recovery. And it would be, the core benefit of this would be that we at the same time addressing both biodiversity as well as climate change challenges. Thank you so much, Anya. Um, Amy, do you want to add to that and wrap up? Uh, sure. I agree with everything that Anya just said, and I think she put it very well. The one nuance I would maybe disagree a little bit, not quite disagree with, but I want to put one nuance on the success of the of the global food system and the green revolution. Um, it was successful in many ways, but the one of the consequences is even before COVID-19, the global food system doesn't really deliver healthy diets. Not to people in rich countries where there's an epidemic of overweight and obesity, and not to countries in middle-income countries, although it's true that undernutrition has declined, that people do have enough food to eat on, on average more than they ever had before. But they still don't necessarily have nutrient-rich diets. And clearly in many poor developing countries where there is not only poor quality diets, but also not enough food. So I think, as Anya said, this is really an opportunity to take a step back and to see beyond the current crisis, which um, again has pointed out our vulnerabilities because of long global supply chains as one big, one big piece of that. So uh, I think that some of the measures that Anya was proposing should be taken much more seriously now to, first of all, enhance resilience so that we're no longer vulnerable to these types of crisis and their people are forecasting that there'll be more of these in the coming years, not just due to pandemics, but also to various climate change related uh, crises, to enhance our resilience to those crises, but also to have a better overall um, performance for healthier diets in all parts of the world. Great, Thank Amy. you both. If I can just come in here as well, I just, uh, Amy, what I just wanted to actually, um, one last point is, 
You know, not only are we in COVID crisis, but it's also been the year where we have the delegates to the United Nations Convention on Biological Diversity deliberating the new elements of a post-2020 global biodiversity framework. That new framework will provide the basis for the next 10 to 20 years for action to achieve the CBD goal of living in harmony with nature. And it's superseding the IT biodiversity targets that are expiring by the end of this year. And what that needs is that the framework does need to have specific targets, both on food systems, and here, as Amy was saying, it is about diets, it's about healthy diets that are using the biodiversity that nature is providing, but also specific targets on mixed agriculture, biodiversity friendly farming systems. And that is the opportunity that we right now have. And uh, why is the framework important? Because the framework is a guiding document for all member countries which have signed up as parties to the convention to follow in line or follow the framework with their own national policies. So the framework will enable governments to marshal a plan to change or have that transformation of the food system that we badly need and has been spelled out before the COVID crisis in those landmark reports that I actually mentioned. Great. Those are a really great point to wrap up this discussion. So thank you, Anya and Amy. Thank you very much. Bye. It's been a real pleasure. So that's all for today. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe on the link provided. See you on the next episodes and keep safe, everyone. Bye-bye.